Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief for March 3rd, 2023. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. This week I'm going to cover a few stories out of the United States. There was a couple of really interesting cases. Well, one case is this front page of the New York Times story this morning. Alex Murdaugh, a lawyer, well, disbarred lawyer out of South Carolina, that was found guilty of murder. Uh, that was a big story in the States. Not sure if people have been following that up here, but it was uh, getting a lot of press down there. And then there was this other story of a grand jury foreperson in uh, the Donald Trump saga, a Georgia-based uh, grand jury, special grand jury. And this uh, foreperson has been going out doing a bunch of interviews. So I'll talk about that a little bit. Some Nova Scotia news as well. There's been a new court protocol in place. I'll uh, briefly touch on that. And as well, the two big Canadian legal news stories this week, uh, two of them, one is the uh, Justin Bork appeal. This was the uh, killer of three uh, RCMP officers back in 2014 in Moncton. And uh, his uh, case, his sentencing was in the Court of Appeal and there was a decision released this week, uh, which has garnered a lot of reaction across the country. And then the other case, uh, the other situation, I guess, is the uh, election uh, issue with the potential interference. Well, alleged interference as far as CSIS is concerned by uh, the Chinese government against um, certain candidates or in favor of certain candidates in the last couple of uh, federal elections. I want to talk about that in the what's called the Critical Election Incident Public Protocol uh, that was supposed to protect us from these sorts of things. So I'll talk about that a little bit and uh, we'll get to all those in a little in a minute. First, uh, just a couple of stories that are uh, very brief that I want to touch on. One was the story came out a couple of days ago that uh, retiring uh, RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky was going to be attending a World Police Summit conference in Dubai in March, uh, March 7th to 9th, uh, so just next week. But, uh, and the, the, she was going to be speaking on two panels. By the way, a little peculiar, anyway, I'm not sure why a conference of that nature would be in Dubai. I'd be curious to see what their police is like uh, in, in there. And, well, maybe they're trying to get some examples from the rest of the world. Anyway, Commissioner Lucky was to be speaking on two panels. One was called the Commissioner's Session on Trust, Fairness, and Resilience, the Evolving Dynamics of Police Leadership. And the second one was on Handling Mass Casualty Events. All right, so this, uh, when, when this came out as a, a news piece on CTV, this, uh, I think there was quite a bit of reaction, like why is she going to be saying anything about these things, uh, where many would say that the police did not handle the mass casualty event very well in Nova Scotia, certainly handled a little better the more recent one in uh, James Smith Cree Nation in Saskatchewan. Anyway, so then uh, a day later, CTV was reporting that Commissioner Lucky, in fact, was not going to go to this summit uh, for personal reasons. The personal reasons I can only imagine being that the news came out that she was going and then people were going to pay attention to what she was going to say and that was the personal reason why she decided not to go. Uh, too bad, in my view. I would have been very curious to see what 
she would say about these kinds of things. We noticed during the mass casualty uh, uh, commission that, and there were exceptions to this, but it seemed in, in some cases that those who retired from the force, who were on their way out, uh, felt a little more free to speak about these kinds of things. I think uh, Brenda Lucky would have been a very interesting speaker on those two topics, and it's too bad that she's decided, or was probably pressured into, not going. All right, so that was uh, that was one story. The second one, uh, just a sort of Nova Scotia thing. Coming out of the pandemic, a lot of issues with uh, virtual court appearances. This was done during the pandemic, and it was a very efficient way to get things done. Routine matters were handled over the phone or by Microsoft Teams, virtually by video. So there was less travel time involved. All of these things done very efficiently. Well, the Nova Scotia Supreme Court has decided to keep some of those efficiencies for uh, certain routine matters, data assignment conferences, uh, case conferences, uh, routine updates. So uh, that will make things a lot easier for, uh, for the courts and for lawyers and clients who are in the Supreme Court system. I suspect uh, the provincial court in my experience, at least uh, recent months, that's been um, they've been using uh, virtual court fairly often, even for non-routine matters, and it's been working quite well. So I suspect the provincial court is going to follow suit and have a protocol. So what it is basically, this is the the default position for certain matters. It's laid out whether it's going to be on the phone, in person, or uh, by video. So uh, good thing for the courts to be making that clear to everybody what uh, what methods are going to be used. All right, so people have been following this case out of the United States. I'm not sure. It's it's right out of a, a John Grisham novel. This Alex Murdaugh, uh, a South Carolina lawyer. He's 54 years old, fourth generation, described as a legal dynasty, this family of lawyers. Uh, they've looked like controlled the prosecutor's office at a big law firm, done a very successful uh, family of lawyers, up until this guy who uh, was disbarred, who was stealing money from his firm, from clients. Uh, 8.8 .8 million was one of the figures listed. Well, he was charged with the murder of his wife and his son, his adult son, a young adult. But, uh, so what the question is, can... Could a lawyer get away with murder? Uh, could he do it? Uh, he, they didn't find any weapons. They didn't find uh, blood evidence or any kind of that DNA stuff on him. He had an alibi of sorts, which was that he was, you know, as close as they could figure to the time of death, uh, visiting his mother, who lived as ailing mother, old elderly mother, who lived 15 minutes away. So there was some evidence of that. And it looked uh, initially like he might be getting away with this. Uh, he, like I said, he was a thief. He stole money from clients from his firm. He was also an opiate addict and uh, had uh, lots of issues that way. So uh, things, in a sense, were going well for Alex Murdaugh, but then uh, they managed to get into his son's, his deceased son's phone and found a video that had been recorded just minutes prior to all of this, uh, to, to the, the attack. Uh, they were sh both shot, so uh, it was a sudden uh, killing. And the video was around the dog kennel that they had on their property. 
and you couldn't see Alex Murdaugh, but you could hear his voice. And so that placed him on the scene. And so Alex Murdaugh had taken the stand in his own defense, was confronted with this evidence of, well, here's your voice, sir. You said you weren't there. Here you were. And uh, that, was, that was about it for him. Jury took about took three hours to come up with a verdict, which is very quick. Uh, possibly they might have had a meal during that time. It might have been. It looked like a very easy decision for the jury to make. The defense team, who had gotten very emotional during their closing arguments, uh, you know, crying at one point. The the lawyer that is uh, making the closing arguments, saying, "Imagine coming back to this scene." Because their case was he had been to his mother's and came back and found this grisly scene and suspected that uh, you know there was no evidence of anybody else that would have had an opportunity. So it was very clear that it was Alex Murdaugh that did it. Uh, but they, yeah, that, you know, got, got all emotional, called for a mistrial immediately afterwards. And uh, the judge in the case said no, uh, he wasn't going to agree or allow that at all and uh, said that the evidence was overwhelming against Murdaugh. So, uh, interesting case. If you haven't followed it, haven't looked at it, uh, be something to look up. Uh, this Alex Murdaugh case, uh, another bizarre twist. After he was kind of figured he might be, uh, he might be caught, he apparently tried to get a distant cousin of him, of his, to uh, kill him. And in the hopes that this... The, whatever money was left in the estate would go to successfully go to his surviving son and insurance funds, life insurance. That didn't work out either. He had, uh, I don't know exactly what happened with the attempt, but the cousin shot at him, but shot, didn't kill him. Uh, so that's, uh, can't seem to do anything right. That guy. Okay. Uh, that was, that was one story out of the U S the other one is this, uh, Donald Trump's special grand jury out of Georgia. And this is, a grand jury, a little different in the United States. In Canada, if you're charged with a crime, you have an, op uh, an indictable serious offense, you have an opportunity for a preliminary hearing, which is a hearing to determine if there's enough evidence to go to trial. The U.S. is a little different. They take it to a grand jury, provide them with the evidence, and if they decide there's enough evidence to indict somebody and, and have them charged then they will be charged. This was a little different. A, a special grand jury in, in Georgia into election fraud, wondering if uh, former President Trump had pressured the uh, attorney general officials in Georgia into trying to effect some uh, election fraud, finding votes is uh, the allegation. Okay, so they go to this grand jury, which is supposed to be a very secret process, much like a criminal civil jury uh, that you're used to thinking about and so they they provide this evidence and it was to provide recommendations as to whether charges would be laid against the former president and this uh, four person Emily Kors has been going and doing interviews afterwards and you know she seems very starstruck by the whole process uh, taking her getting her 15 minutes of fame uh, hinting that indictments are being recommended. Now, there are other people that could potentially be subject to those indictments, not just former President Trump, but others. But uh, it seems quite likely that this grand jury, from what her interviews are revealing, is going to uh, recommend indictments against the former president. 
anyway, so it's a, I thought really interesting just to show the difference between Canada and the United States in terms of juries. Uh, Judge Robert McBurney of the uh, Florida uh, Superior Court uh, told the jury, the grand jury, that their deliberations are secret, but they are allowed to publicly discuss evidence that they heard, and they can also discuss their final report once that is issued, but not the deliberations. So it's a very fine line, which would be safest walked by not walking in at all and not giving interviews, but this uh, four-person is, and it's really, I think, having the effect of undermining the process. I mean, there's a reason why those deliberations are kept secret, so it allows people to say whatever they think and not feel like they're going to be you know, subject to outside pressure or uh, consequences depending on how they uh, perform, in a sense, during the their deliberations in a, in a jury. In Canada, it's an offense, uh, a criminal offense under Section 649 of the Criminal Code for a juror to disclose anything about their deliberations. This, my research tells me this stretches back to 1785, the Lord Mansfield's rule uh, out of uh, Britain. Now, a special grand jury is not the same as a regular jury, but the rules are more or less the same. I mean, you have to keep your deliberations secret, nothing about what you say in that, nothing about what is said while the jury is deliberating is can be revealed, nothing that discusses how you were influenced by anything that took place during the trial, what you thought was good evidence, solid evidence, credibility questions as to certain witnesses, all of those things are not to be revealed by any jurors, and you'll see in Canada, you, you'll never see a juror uh, being interviewed after the fact. Uh, and the risk is, of course, that they would be charged with a criminal offense. So uh, much different, uh, and boy, uh, just another example, I guess, of how things are so different down in the United States. All right, so uh, that is that, but uh, next story. Next story is the story in Canada now of the election interference allegations and what we've heard this week from uh, CSIS officials uh, leaks from CSIS and been revealed in the Globe and Mail and other news outlets is that uh, officials with the uh, Chinese Communist Party Chinese government were uh, trying to help out certain liberal MPs or candidates uh, become MPs and you know spreading uh, you know bad news or bad uh, you know, reports about conservative policies and candidates. And so the question is, well, why are we only learning about this now? Because one of the other things that came out is that CSIS had uh, told the Prime Minister's office that this was happening and had recommended that the uh, certain Liberal candidate in the Ontario area, be, Ontario uh, riding, uh, be rejected as a candidate, which the Liberal Party didn't do. And then also we didn't hear anything about this. Well, a couple of elections ago, there was this, well, this was after the, the James Comey uh, FBI re revelations, uh, you know, that uh, talking about Hillary Clinton's uh, server and all of these, you know, allegations of Russian interference in the U.S. election back in 2016. And so the Canadian uh, government set up what they called a critical election incident public protocol, which sounds like a serious thing and a law, but it is not a law. It is a, a cabinet directive. Uh, so it is something that uh, cabinet sets up and they want a report, but it's 
it's not a law with the kind of consequences that you would expect from a, you know, something that's been legislated or a regulation that could be violated and there would be consequences. It was designed to give guidance to civil servants during what is called the caretaker phase of a government. So during an election campaign, the cabinet is still an active cabinet. If you're the Minister of Defense, well, you're still the Minister of Defense, even though you're running uh, for, for office and running in the election. So uh, the problem is, all right, what is, what is interference sufficient to go public? Well, the three protocol, the three factors they're supposed to consider, this committee of civil servants, is one, the degree to which a free and fair election is undermined by whatever activity is taking place. Secondly, the potential to undermine the election's credibility. And thirdly, the degree of confidence in the information itself. Well, it was the information was coming from CSIS, the, the high degree of confidence. The issue, okay, so the, the, there was lots of confidence in the information, but what the committee has uh, revealed or suggested the government has is that the problem was not widespread enough to affect the country-wide result. Well, I'm not sure that that is the correct standard for this committee uh, and the protocol because, all right, well, if it's not going to affect the overall outcome of the election, if it's just one or two seats, well, uh, actually that could potentially affect the overall outcome so I don't think that's a correct interpretation uh, you know if something is if something is uh, has an impact the, a potential impact of affecting one riding uh, that should be revealed as well uh, and if there's outside interference that's improper um, don't see any reason why that wouldn't be revealed during the election. I think voters in each particular riding where that might be taking place would want to know uh, the, this kind of information beforehand. So there's some recommended changes and uh, clarifications. Uh, I, I would say that this should be clarified so that smaller scale, in a sense, inter uh, incidents of interference should also be revealed publicly to uh, to the voters so that they can make a decision properly on on what is actually taking place okay so uh, we'll watch for that I'm sure that's going to continue to be in the news pretty serious to see outside interference I know there's been calls for a public inquiry into uh, what took place and what kind of uh, attempts the Chinese government or uh, elements of the Chinese government are trying to make in Canadian elections because uh, we're gonna have another one in the next couple of years probably and uh, we want to make sure that that's done without uh, without any such doubts. Okay, uh, last story I want to cover. This is a another big one this week in Canada, and this is the No Brunswick Court of Appeal decision in the uh, Justin Bork sentencing. Now, Justin Bork, uh, those don't remember now, Justin Bork's name came up a few times during the Mass Casualty Commission because the uh, report from that incident back in 2014 where Justin Bork, he killed three RCMP officers, wounded seriously two others, and uh, was at large, it took, him, took uh, police 28 hours to capture him in Moncton. He was walking around a subdivision, he was in camouflage, he had firearms, he was hiding. He, uh, so that was June 4th of 2014. Pled guilty on August 8th of uh, 2014 to the first degree murders, uh, three of them. And so he was sentenced that, uh, that fall by Chief Justice uh, Smith of the New Brunswick Supreme Court, uh, Chief Justice at the time, 
to life in prison for each uh, first-degree murder offense. And in each case, then, he was, uh, there was 25-year minimum uh, time for parole eligibility. So life in prison, in a sense, it doesn't mean the rest of your life. It means life in prison, but you would be eligible for parole that is released under conditions after a period of time. In this case, the uh, court determined that the three 25-year time frames should run consecutively. In other words, that Justin Bork wouldn't be eligible for parole for 75 years, which I think, uh, if I read correctly, would mean he would be eligible when he was 99 years old. Unlikely to reach that age, but uh, in any event, if he was 25 years, it would be eligible at about 50 years old. So the appeal got a lot of attention uh, politically and in legal circles this week. But in fact, it was quite a routine matter in a legal sense. It was a a really simple and clear appeal. It wasn't really argued by the Crown. Uh, Normally, okay, so normally when he was sentenced back in 2014, normally you have 30 days to appeal your sentence. But the reason this was in the news was in... uh, Quebec, this uh, Alexandre Bissonnette, in uh, January, January 29th, 2017, uh, murdered uh, six uh, people and seriously wounded five others in uh, Quebec, and he was sentenced to uh, life in prison with no eligibility for parole for 40 years. Okay, so in that case, the Quebec Court of Appeal found that the parole ineligibility uh, should be concurrent. In other words, the 25-year maximums should run together. And declared that the law that was brought in uh, by the previous Conservative government, Section 245.51, was unconstitutional. That section allowed parole ineligibility timeframes to be concurrent Quebec Court of Appeals said that that was unconstitutional and it went to the Supreme Court of Canada and the Supreme Court of Canada agreed with that. Okay, so what the Supreme Court of Canada said is that this long period of ineligibility for parole effectively uh, deprives the offender of any realistic possibility of being granted parole uh, before they die. So uh, that that is degrading in nature and thus incompatible with human dignity. It presupposes definitively and irreversibly that the person lacks the capacity to reform and re-enter society. And so under section 12 of the Charter, which is the section that guarantees us to be free from uh, cruel and unusual punishment, that this was declared uh, unconstitutional. All right, so what they say is that Parliament, the Supreme Court of Canada said in Bissonnette that Parliament may not prescribe a sentence that deprives every offender on whom it is imposed of any realistic prob- possibility of parole. Even in cases that, like first-degree murder, and they point that out, where rehabilitation is an objective of minimal importance. They don't care if these people are reformed, they, they just want to have them in jail. It says, uh, and the Supreme Court of Canada said that the imposition of sentences, that of excessive sentences, 
that fulfill no function, so uh, does nothing more than bring the administration of justice into disrepute. You know, it's like it's like splashing somebody who's underwater, right? It does nothing, and everybody involved looks a little silly. I mean, if you sentence somebody to consecutive life sentences, you know, beyond the average or maximum uh, lifespan of a human being, well, what are you doing, right? They're never going to serve that sentence. Uh, so it just undermines the uh, integrity of the justice system by doing so. So 25 years, and then it's not like people are going to be released automatically after 25 years either. It goes to the parole board at that point, and, you know, the person is still dangerous and not considered reformed and the parole board doesn't agree that they're ready for release then they're not released or if they're released under certain conditions strict uh, observation then they can be released you know uh, just happened that this week again back to the united states but uh, it could happen in canada as well senator robert kennedy uh, who was a possible president his assassin uh, was denied parole of Jeez, for the 17th or 18th time he applied. He's been in jail for 55 years, since 1968. And so, uh, not like these people get released automatically after they're eligible for parole. Justin Bork, uh, he's completely unreformed. Uh, and, you know, there's lots of opposition, as I'm sure they will be. As a 50-year-old, when he's eligible for parole, I'm sure they'll uh, take a very close look at that and, you know, whatever outrage is uh, we've seen this week uh, expressions of outrage from people that were very upset by this court of appeal verdict uh, decision out of new brunswick this week i'm sure they'll be there when uh, justin borg is eligible for parole uh, in well i guess it'll be 40 years well 20 years from now so uh, we'll see about that. So, like I said, the, the appeal itself was a very routine one. It was handled by written submissions only. There was no argument from the Crown. The Crown and the judge agreed that the decision of the Supreme Court of Canada and Bissonnette uh, dictated, it was binding on the New Brunswick Court of Appeal, which is a lower court, of course, and so it was dealt with by written submissions. And uh, in the course of their decision, I read the decision, it was six pages, only brief, that the Court of Appeal did uh, make sure they noted the horrific nature of the crimes by both uh, Bork and Bissonnette uh, in coming to this decision. And so they say, well, you can't have an absurdity in a, uh, in a sentence, and so this is as serious a sentence as people, uh, as courts in Canada are permitted to uh, render. So uh, that's that, uh, you know, people can disagree as to how uh, severe punishment can be in Canada. You know, we don't torture people. Uh, there's a limit to, there's, a, there's time limits to certain offenses in sentencing. Uh, and so, you know, and you, and it goes against human dignity to have just absolutely no chance, you know, trying to predict 20, 25 years into the future how somebody's going to be, what their personality is going to be like, um, you know, that's uh, a difficult thing to do and something that is better left to people at the time. And that is the parole board at the time when the decision needs to be made. So uh, that's, uh, that's an explanation of that uh, controversial issue from this week. I thought it would be important for people to maybe to understand why that decision was made and maybe um, uh, cool the heat a little bit on 
some of the outrage that has uh, been engendered by uh, the New Brunswick Court of Appeal decision this week. Okay, so uh, that is uh, some interesting stories, some uh, some cases out of the United States this week. Uh, I thought I'd touch on those. And the election interference, a uh, big national issue in Canada this week, and the Justin Bork uh, decision as well. Uh, you know, big news in a sense, but a very routine legal matter as well. So uh, that's it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for uh, watching, and thank you for listening. If you like these uh, videos, podcasts, be sure to uh, like the video on YouTube, uh, share it with others, and uh, be a subscriber if you're not already. Okay, thanks again, and we'll see you next time.